I love the story that Carlin Knight tells about um, her and Doug's wedding 35 years ago last month. <clears throat> Their flower girl was a second cousin of Carolyn's, of Carlin's family. Uh, Yevany was almost three at the time. Her participation meant a long trip from Sonoma County all the way to Bakersfield, but it included a brand new sparkly dress for the occasion. After their wedding and honeymoon, um, Carlin joined Doug in Santa Rosa and within a few months visited her aunt's home where she met up with Yevany. She asked, do you remember me? And, she, and Yevany looked up and said, of course I remember you. You were in my wedding. <laughs> like all good stories, Luke tells his account of the gospel in a way that we might imagine ourselves as part of the story. Now, it wouldn't have been difficult for someone in the first century to imagine that. It's a little more difficult for us. And so I want to fill in some things or help reference what he's calling attention to so that we might feel the sense of significance he is mounting. Luke's introduction of John the Baptist gives us a precise time when all this happened by naming all those different rulers and leaders throughout the region of what we now consider to be Israel. But more than a list of names and places, really what Luke is doing is drawing a... uh, a backdrop that is heavy and dark because it is, it is a period of great oppression and, and of the people being miserable from their captivity by Rome and their occupation by Rome and, and the demise that they have seen uh, as a result of, of Rome's surrogate kings, first Herod the Great and now his successive sons, whom... Luke mentions. Added to this difficult time is the fact that 200 years have gone by since anyone has heard a word from the Lord, since a prophet has spoken and announced what God is doing. Even the center of Israel's faith, the temple, which, uh, which should have galvanized and mobilized people in their in their worship of God, many thought was compromised because of the allegiances that were made with Rome. And so there were, um, there were alternative communities that rose up, much like the one at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And you could tell that there were people who, who wanted to see God working and were living in such a way to help bring that about. So into this setting, Luke presents John as someone who looks and acts the part of a prophet. You don't think that's going to get people's attention? His clothes, his location, and his message have all the trademarks of someone who's been sent by God. The word of the Lord came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We read that as just a matter of fact, oh, okay, they would have heard that as, it's happening. It's happening. In this way, John represents a connection with God's story and of Israel's past. 
he belongs to the age of the prophets, and so he continues in that line, in that tradition. But he speaks as one who is reminding people of the coming of God and the fulfillment of God's promises in the initiation of the age to come. The fact that he's located along the banks of the Jordan River signals a connection with the exodus of their ancestors. When they were set free from Egypt and they fled from Egypt and crossed this, um, the Dead Sea and then wandered in the Sinai wilderness and then entered and crossed, entered the promised land through the Jordan River. So again, it seems in every way, they now live in the land, but they are still occupied. They are oppressed and ruled by an enemy. It's as if John is announcing a new exodus of God's coming to the rescue. That's going to get people to come out there and hear what he has to say. Luke describes John's ministry as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of old, of God coming to establish his rule on this earth. But characteristic of Luke is this amazing thing. He includes as his last line of Isaiah's quote, the fact that this event is not only for the good of Israel and Israel's benefit, but it has a universal application. This isn't just good news for Israel. This is good news for the world. Because he says, all humanity will see the salvation of God. This isn't one more attempt of a rescue. This is the ultimate John's ministry was a call for repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we usually think of the word repent with some uh, street preacher who's, who's basically saying to us all the negatives of life and how we are estranged from God, and if we want to get right, we have to repent, and then comes this phrase, or else, and then you proceed to tell what the or else does or else is, out of a sense of fear, you're hoping that people might, might um, realize, wake up as it were. Well, repentance is a wake-up call, but it doesn't have to be a wake-up call of everything that's wrong. It could just simply be a wake-up call to understand the times that we live in, to perceive God's presence in the midst of them, and the fact, and to be aware of what God might be doing. In this respect, repentance is less about a recognition of how bad we are and more a realization of how good God is. I like how Frederick Beekner puts it. He says, To repent is to come to your senses. It's not so much something you do as something that happens. True repentance spends less time looking at the past and saying, woe is me, I'm sorry, and more at looking at the future and saying, wow, wow. We could use a little more of that today. Instead of looking at everything that's happening in the world and thinking, woe is us, and how terrible, and what's going to happen to America, and, and all those kinds of things, what if we simply say, Wow, wake up to the reality that God's kingdom is here and God is at work. And seeing the future as a fulfillment of what God is accomplishing. 
The root meaning means a change of direction or mind. I've often tried to illustrate it this way. Just think of it that we are moving in a direction with our backs toward God. We've turned our backs on God. We're doing our thing. And to repent is to turn around and, and accept God in our lives. To move toward home rather than moving away. It's, it was perfectly captured in the song we sing. No more living in my own way, following my own path, living for myself, my own desires. Surrender. Turn around. I'm going to live my life for God. <clears throat> change of heart is perhaps the best translation. It's a change from the inside out. Because it changes the condition of our hearts, our, the orientation of our hearts. Well, Luke has three groups line up to be baptized by John. I don't know about you, but if, if I heard the preacher who I'm about to be baptized call me a child of a snake, I, I'm not sure I would choose that person to baptize me. I might say, is there someone else? And yet, here they come. And the first group are already insiders. They're the kind of people who remind me a lot of people today who, who feel no need to repent. We have Abraham as our fathers. God's already chosen us. What's wrong? Why do we need to repent? And how many times I've encountered people who, if you use, if, if, they, if, you say, if they say, ah, how do I become a Christian? You say, well, the first thing is to repent of your sin and acknowledge God in your life. They'd say, why? My life, I haven't done anything that wrong that, that I need forgiveness for. And the worst thing we can do is say, well, let me, let me tell you how bad you are, you know? <laughs> That's not going to do any good. It'd be much better if we just say, well, look at what John said to those people. He said, it's not about the root of your, your heritage and your, and your family line. It's about the fruit you produce in your life. Let's look at your fruit. Are you honoring God in your life? And are you living in such a way that others are... are um, are ennobled and, and built up and encouraged? Are you living for God and for others, or are you living for yourself? Well, I wouldn't say that. I would try to help them figure it out for themselves. <laughs> well, that's the first group. The second two groups of people uh, were a little more on the outside. In fact, they were fringe groups, uh, not really part of the inner circle of Israel's community life. And yet, they were drawn by John's message of hope and of God's presence writing what was wrong, despite the fact that they might be considered the main reason or part of the reason things are wrong. Tax collectors were among the most despised people in all of Israel. They came by their wealth through dishonest means. And were seen as collaborators with Israel's Gentile oppressors. And then he referenced soldiers. And these probably aren't Roman soldiers. These are probably 
what we would refer to as Jewish police. They were probably soldiers related to Herod. Not Herod the Great, but in this case, Herod Antipas and his brother. Because of their positions of authority and power, they could take advantage of others, and that's how they lived. That's how they made their living. And to both of these people, John exhorts them to be content, let your wages be enough, and learn to be generous. In other words, live totally different than the way you are. And then Luke makes this one more fascinating connection of John the Baptist with the prophet Elijah. During a time of religious and political compromise, Elijah stood against the wickedness of King Ahab. You, re, you probably know Jezebel more than you do Ahab. That's, that was the time of Elijah. Similarly, John denounces an illicit marriage of Herod to his brother's wife Herodias, which gets him imprisoned because of it. Elijah was considered the expected forerunner of the day of the Lord, that day when God's people would be vindicated and God's judgment would be poured out upon her enemies and oppressors. Therefore, given John's appearance, his location, and his message, people sense that this could be the advent of that day. They skip over Elijah and say, could John be the Messiah? Is he the one? John quickly makes it clear he's not. There's one far more important than he is. And he says, I, you know, I'm baptizing you with water, but when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. As Brenna pointed out last week from the prophet Joel, the coming day of the Lord meant a promise of God righting the wrongs of all humanity, of creation being liberated from its, uh, from its condition of deterioration and decay. And then comes these words found in Joel 2. In that day, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. You see, in the past, God's Spirit, when God's Spirit came upon a person, that person received um, an anointing and, and an ability to work under the influence of God's Spirit with great power and accomplished amazing things that clearly was the work of God. But it was on select, isolated individuals for a specific purpose. And yet the promise to the people when the Lord would come, is that everyone would have the realization of that presence of God in their life and the power that comes with it to live the way we were intended to be. Two years ago, I officiated the outdoor wedding of Chelsea Bauman and Drew Dirks. Since it was Chelsea's second marriage, the role of flower girl was given to her vivacious five-year-old daughter, Addie, one of my favorite people on the planet. Her great-aunt, Lee, who we know as Lee Rodriguez, had the task of telling Addie when it was her time to walk up to the front. Now, with most children that age, you're coaxing them to go up. Addie didn't need any coaxing. 
She simply needed to be released (laughs) to walk down the aisle with all eyes focused on her as she carefully placed flower petals down the aisle. She loved her role and the attention that came with it. But once she was at the front, she turned around and saw her mom lined up to come down the aisle. And with enthusiasm and urgency, she whipped around to the three of us that were still up there and said, it's the bride. (laughs) Now she knew who it was. She could have easily said, it's my mom. But she also knew the significance of the occasion and what it was all about. And she was celebrating, this means something. That's exactly what Luke is doing in chapter 3. Luke gives attention to the one who comes before him, before Jesus' entry into the world. And he tells of the response of all those who have assembled and their high anticipation and excitement with what this means, that God is coming. And when people wonder if John himself might be the main event, he says, no, no, no. It's yet to come. And then when Jesus arrives and he's baptized, there's not the same attention given to him as there has been to John. But Luke draws attention to him with childlike excitement and seems to be saying, it's the Messiah. Don't you get it? Don't you see what's happening Of the four gospel accounts, only two have genealogies, Matthew and Luke. Matthew begins his, his, his gospel with a genealogy and starts with Jesus and then goes all the way back, I mean, starts with Abraham and leads all the way up to Jesus. So he sort of sets the stage of the one whom God chose to fulfill his purposes through is, is fully revealed in Jesus. Luke, his genealogy appears at the end of this chapter, at the end of what we've just read. It now is a genealogy starting with Jesus and goes back through David, through Abraham, all the way to Adam, and beyond Adam to God. He refers to Jesus as the Son of God, which is another way of saying Messiah. But Luke has this amazing way of presenting the family tree of Jesus back to the creation of the world as if he's saying Jesus is not only the Messiah of Israel coming to save them, but rather he's come for us all. He's the Savior of the world. All creation, all the world, all of humanity will benefit from his coming and what he, has, what he will accomplish. And this is only the beginning. 